not even six weeks into it, I saw that there was so much more potential beyond just marketing myself that really I could use it as a really broad platform to educate women and to educate just the general public on fertility and infertility and trying to conceive and women's health. And then even as much as a few weeks ago, I have sort of taken a whole new approach that it's not just about fertility and women's health. It's also about personal growth. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on the show, I am joined by Dr. Candice O'Hearn Perfetto. Dr. Perfetto completed her fellowship training in REI at Stanford University. She went to medical school at Georgetown. She was the chief resident of obstetrics and gynecology at George Washington University, also in D.C. Dr. Pavato is committed to patient-centered care. You can see her sharing content and ideas about that on social media. She is board certified in both REI and OBGYN. She has experience in all areas of infertility. Her special interests include recurrent pregnancy loss, oocyte preservation, and improving treatment outcomes. She now practices at the Center of Reproductive Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Perfetto, Candice, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you for having me today. This is the first time we've met. We followed each other on social media. And no small part of the reason why I wanted to have you on the show is because you have these interests such as recurrent pregnancy loss, egg freezing, improving outcomes. And when someone has these interests, it's like, okay, how do I communicate these to the patient community? How do I collaborate with my peers? And for years, that just meant maybe go to some meetings, maybe do a couple talks at OBGYN offices. And now there is a class of REIs who who are just reaching the masses almost on social media, at least tens of thousands of people collectively every single week. And it amazes me how someone that just finished fellowship five years ago can come on and reach the number of people that you have and build that type of rapport with the patient base. And I'm now I'm starting to see like almost like two different kinds of REIs based based on how prevalent this is, but maybe we could start with, was that something that was intentional for you? Were were you already on Instagram before you you even went into fellowship? Was it something that you were just on personally or how did it become a tool that you connect with other doctors with and with patients? So actually, I am a pretty private person. So I was not even on Facebook until I think 2000 and maybe 16 when everybody else was getting off. I sort of finally decided to jump on. <laughs> and, Welcome. Eight years later. <laughs> so, eight years later, I jumped on. And that was really just to catch up with people that I had not seen in forever. 
So I had very little personal self on any type of social media. I decided to jump on Instagram about a year and a half ago because to be honest, I was actually doing it for more of a marketing to try and meet new patients and get myself out there and really kind of show myself to like the public. I do think that I'm a a pretty caring doctor. I think I follow evidence-based medicine. And sometimes in a really big city such as Houston, you kind of get lost in the other dozens of doctors that that are out there. So that's why I jumped on about six, not even six weeks into it. I saw that there was so much more potential beyond just marketing myself that really I could use it as a really broad platform to educate women and to educate just the general public on fertility and infertility and trying to conceive and women's health. And then even as much as a few weeks ago, I have sort of taken a whole new approach that it's not just about fertility and women's health. It's also about personal growth. So I have definitely in the year and a half seen major changes to what I post. And the general thought process is to really just be an educator and and somebody who inspires the women out there. There was no social media in your life prior to 2016? Very, very limited. It's really sad. (laughs) How did your strategy change when you go on thinking, okay, maybe it's just marketing. Maybe it's just getting my name out there. To me, what you're doing now is marketing, meaning just you're getting ideas out there. You're helping people. You're connecting with people. To me, that is marketing, but it sounds like you had a different vision for it then than you do now. What's changed in the types of content that you share? So when I initially started, I was way more focused on sort of my practice. And I think my practice is awesome. I think I'm going to be blunt. I think we're the best in the city. And so I was really interested in sort of introducing people to our practice because our central location was in, or still is in Clear Lake, but I'm in the, actually in the heart of the medical center. So I was just really wanting to sort of introduce my practice. And then I started to see that patients and followers really wanted to know more about me as a doctor and, and less about my practice. And um, so although I was still marketing for my practice, I was really just sort of introducing people more to myself. And now it's come to be where I, I've looked at a few of your posts from this week. And a lot of the people that you're interacting with are other doctors. It's a lot of, there's a lot of peer collaboration, discussion, but also, you know, people are coming on and they're just asking questions about PCOS or asking questions about egg freezing. You know, if if you look at different posts that you have, people just jump in with questions and, and you, you, you answer them. And so does that, do you see that starting to to make its way for people that are new patients and they've built that rapport because you answered some question four months back or you connected with them on a post or are those two worlds still kind of disconnected? So first of all, there is a an amazing medical community out there. So I have connected with so many other reproductive endocrinologists that I never, I've never even met that I've connected through Instagram and they are a great source of knowledge and networking. 
so that has been, if I had nothing else, that alone has been great. From the like follower and patient perspective, the other kind of questions and posts I get, I do get a lot of questions. I regularly have to remind people I cannot give medical advice, but I do like to give just general knowledge. And I think that general knowledge is something that a lot of people are lacking. Either they're lacking it because they don't go to their own doctor or they're lacking it because they feel like, unfortunately, their doctor doesn't have enough time to really go into the deep, dark depths of PCOS or endometriosis. So I like that somebody can refer back to one of my posts and get a little bit deeper information than they maybe get with that five, 10 minutes that they have with their, with their general OBGYN or even their primary care doctor. And it's general knowledge, but it's it's delivered in a personalized way. It, it's not it's not personal to anyone's case. It's not about a case. It's not medical advice, but it's a comment on a social media post. So someone can connect with it more intimately and readily than I think just reading an article somewhere. And there's yourself and probably probably a dozen doctors in our field. There's several hundreds, thousands more in other subspecialties and specialties and in general health and wellness that are corresponding with patients in this way that it's just, it's just become the norm. And I think it's become the norm just in the past couple of years. I think people were terrified in, in, in the beginning of, of sharing in almost any kind of way, because I, the, the word social media appears in HIPAA legislation exactly zero times. There's no guidance from Health and Human Services. There's no guidance from OCR. And it's it's just such an antiquated piece of legislation that one could even, and one could strictly argue it in such a way that even having a Google My Business listing claimed without even any responses could could have violations for for PHI and people were paralyzed by that for a while. And now there's there's thousands of doctors all over Instagram, Facebook that's like it's like this is this is the norm. We've it's it's almost as though there are just, it's like we've got our own code for this. We know how not to give medical advice. We know how not to mention cases. But when do you think what why do you think that is? Is it just the fact that it's a younger generation that's just more comfortable with this? And the prior cohort maybe just saw it as something completely new, so it could only be a risk. Why do you think that this is there's definitely been a shift in the sands in the last two to three years? I do I mean, I still worry about HIPAA. I mean, I think all of us do. I'm overly cautious about what I post. So it's definitely in the back of my mind. But I also think that the younger physicians, and I don't really even think I'm all that much younger, but the ones closer to millennials and the ones who were millennials are more at ease with using social media. Like I said, it was a jump for me to even start a Facebook page back when I did. So this has been a major shift in the way I think of things. But I do think that there's so much of medicine that is not getting out to the masses. And if physicians who practice evidence-based medicine, who can be on social media and feel comfortable with it are educating people, then if you're just giving general basic knowledge, you're really not putting yourself at risk or certainly not too much risk. I just don't see how over time that there's any way that 
physicians that aren't using these platforms are able to compete with those that have really mastered them. Other than that, there's just the caseloads are so high that there's so much to go around for everyone, but they're the ones getting what's left over. And I wrote an article years ago, probably apparently before you were even on Facebook, I wrote it was 2015 or 2016. And I said, guys, it's Instagram. I promise That's you. That's what Instagram. brought me on. That's what... <laughs> Your article brought me on. <laughs> okay. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Well, that's what we'll tell people. <laughs> and what I was hoping was that, that my clients, our, our prospective clients, that they were, that they would really embrace that. That yeah, let's let's communicate with the patients here. That's just generally not what happened. They really didn't. I mean, they they you could say that they're on Instagram, but that is really in many cases just checking a box. They've got somebody just kind of doing really generic posts. What I have seen is people like yourself, and I can think of a dozen people or less, almost all of whom are in their early 40s or younger, with the exception of one or two. And actually, when we were looking at, because we're going to be doing a virtual conference this year, we're looking at, at who are the doctors that are influencing on social media. All of them are female. I, there, are, there are men using it, but the, who are really leading the, I, I would say, who are really the influencers, all are female. I wonder if this is, you see a divide, the potential for a divide, one by gender, but also certainly by age. Definitely. And I would say it's kind of funny that you're bringing this up because really recently, one of the OBGYNs that I follow just posted about an article that was published in the Journal of Surgery on how social media is a great place for women to meet mentors in surgery. And I think that we make ourselves more available on these types of platforms, which is great for the younger generation because if you're in a large surgical field, less so with REI because we are we're pretty half and half female and male. But if you're in a large surgical field and you don't have a lot of women to look up to, you can go to Instagram and find somebody to be your mentor. So I think women in general probably feel a little bit more comfortable with it. I would say also there are more younger, from a fertility perspective, a lot of the younger doctors that are graduating from fellowship are women. And a lot of the older doctors that have been around a lot longer are men. I mean, it's just how the field started. It was much more male-dominated, and now it's becoming a little bit more female-dominated. So you're going to just naturally get that more females because we're also going to be a little bit on the younger side. Uh, To go back to what you were saying also about doctors who aren't on social media sort of getting the leftovers, I would say to some extent, yes. In a big city, I think that it's going to be pretty vital to be on social media because the public is on it and they're looking at their doctors before. But I would also say that if you're in a smaller city, you're probably not going to have as much competition. So you kind of go to who's available. But I'll also say that I see a lot of complicated patients now. So I get a lot of patients coming in, even from other states, like patients coming in from Oklahoma or other cities, like people coming in from Austin who want a second opinion because they found me through social media. They want me to try something different, something special. So I do see more new patients, but I also see more complicated patients because of it. I'm glad you brought up the smaller city example because I can think of something. And I I talk about the smaller city examples often because this, it's often the smaller practices or the independent practices in smaller cities that 
invest the least in patient experience. That's not always true. We do work with people who are who really take it seriously, but I just I do see that some people want to advance because that's in their nature, and other people advance just because they have to, and the pressure is on them. And that's the case in a lot of large cities, and it's less the case in smaller cities. But I can think of an example, and, and I just want to be careful about what I say because I really like all of the people involved. But there's a group that had done very well with social media marketing. We had worked with them for a long time. They just got to a point where they were good and our company grew and, and they were good at the level they were at. And I was trying to say that, you know, guys, this isn't something that you're just good at and, and it's done with. It's, it's, this is the advancement of technology, of communication, of society. It's something that's ongoing. And they were satisfied with that. One of the doctors left began their own practice. And this doctor is now I'm now seeing on social media and this this doctor is going after it. And the other group has regressed to just sort of the, the just tactics of posting a meme or posting, you know, just an infographic. And and I just think, you know, it, it it's not long before this person takes a lot of that patient load in a way that it's not just knocking on the doors of the OBGYN offices. Maybe this person is doing that too, but this is a way of now you're capturing so many people that this practice has abdicated. And I just see that as such a liability. I totally agree. I think one of the things also is that most of the doctors on Instagram, because that's really the biggest platform for, for for medicine, I would say, are themselves. They're not even their practice. So, I mean, one of the risks is that that doctor can go to a different practice and the patients would follow that doctor, not necessarily the practice. So I think that that example is a perfect example of that, that it's doctor-centered more so than practice-centered. But I also think patients really like that. I would know if my doctor was not posting, much like I can tell that all of the fertility doctors that are on there are posting. They don't have somebody posting for them. They don't have somebody responding for them. I spend minutes between each patient responding to posts. I spend 30 minutes before I go to bed responding to posts and looking at DMs. And I think that that's what the majority, if not all of us, are doing because the real connection is between the actual physician and the follower or the physician and the patient, not between somebody who's doing it for you. And when you're doing it for a big practice, it's not usually the physician that's doing it. And, and patients know that. So let's unpack this a little bit more because there's, I don't, feel free to disagree, but I don't think that it has to be this way where it's, well, I'm not, it, it doesn't come natural to me and I'm just not someone that picks up my phone and takes a selfie or figures out all these different emojis or all these filters. And so it just, it doesn't come naturally to me and I'm not younger and you know, I'm not cool in air quotes. And so this isn't for me. I don't think that it has to be that way. I do, at, at the people that are killing it, that, that's it. I mean, that is it for them. They want, they're just, they're cool people. It's like they're people that you would want to hang out with. They're really good at social. It's just like, it's nothing for them to take a selfie for to, to bang out a thousand letters and use the right emojis and just ha have it 
written in a, a way that's it's going to do well. That that is something natural. It's something that that can't be taught. But I do see other physicians, even you know, docs that are just a couple years out from retirement. It's like when we can get them to do it in their own way, it does really well. We work with one doctor, independent practice, and he's just a couple years out from retirement. He really doesn't like social media and he just doesn't like it. It's not something that he would do himself. I said, well, let's call him Dave for this. And I said, Dave, let's, let's, let's do this Facebook live series. I promise. Like we don't, you don't have to do everything, but do a Facebook live where we talk about a couple topics and he's not young. He's not cool in air quotes. Although Dave, if you're listening, I think you're cool, but his patients love him because he's a great doctor. He's a great man. He's, he's a truly a kind person that really wants to serve his patients. And when he does these Facebook lives, his patients come out and they say, hey, this is the doctor I was telling you about. And, and they just love him. And the, the, the women on my team, almost all of them have gone through fertility treatment. They, they all say, if he, if he was in our area, we would choose him as our doctor. And it just sort of, it goes, uh, it goes contrary to, to what is very common of I would prefer a younger female doctor. I would prefer someone who's, yeah, I don't know, more in line with social media. But if, if you can just, if you can just participate, if you can engage, if you can show what your natural strengths are, there's a lot to be done. But we have to, like, we have to, like, we we have we've got to spank them in order to be able to do it. We have to ride them in order to be able to do it because, you know, they've got everything else going on with the practice and, and that's their focus. And this isn't something that comes naturally. And even though they're getting a ton of positive feedback, both from the business end and both from just patient feedback, it's still something that I feel like if, if we weren't on top of them about that, it would just, it would just go the, the way. And that is the case for definitely a certain generation and, and crop of doctors. So I would just be interested in your thoughts on, for those of it, for those that aren't like, it's it's not something that they would naturally just pick up their phone and, and start being on social, but what could and should they be doing? So as cool as I am, I have to be honest that this is not natural for me at the beginning either. Like even like now I'll look back at my phone to try and find pictures from residency or fellowship or med school to try and post like old pictures and I have none of myself. So it was not like I was selfieing it up before here. I actually was not selfieing it up at all. I thought that that was like, it made me uncomfortable. It made me kind of cringe to like put my face in front of the photo. So I had to do a major shift in sort of the way I thought too. So, I mean, I definitely jumped in with both feet. There, I will admit that I really, really like the creative side of it. So for me, this is a really great creative outlet. So I think if you can find something about it that intrigues you and you like, then you kind of jump on that part first and then you work backwards on the other stuff that has to be done. So I really liked the fact that I could make my grid look pretty and I could write what I wanted to write the way I wanted to write it. So I had to adjust my comfort level with pictures because that's what Instagram is really all about. But if I got a good picture, then I could draw people into what I wanted to really express, which was the 
post. So I think if you find what you excites you, then you can adjust the other stuff around it. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. You jumped in with both feet. You talked a bit of in the beginning of the episode about the impetus for that. I want to talk a little bit more about it. So my timeline is probably that you were three years into your practice when you jumped in with both feet. Yes. So you're, uh, you're new and you're new to the market. You did not grow up in the market that you practice in right now. You didn't go to medical school there. Didn't do any of your training there. So, uh, do you think, you know, if you're being introspective, if, yeah, okay, so this is why I started, you mentioned in the, in the beginning, I started because of marketing. Had you been super established, like this is my hometown, I've got relationships with all of the OBGYNs and, you know, my practice is, my own practice, not my group, my own practice is really established. Do you think that you still jump in with both feet? I don't know that I would. I don't know that I would have. I think... Somebody told me to do it. Somebody was like, you should be on Instagram. You should put everything that you're saying to your patients out there for everybody else. And in that moment, I think I had like a quiet month where I hadn't seen a lot of new patients. And I was like, you know what? I'm I'm going to take that advice and I'm going to do it. And I actually took that advice and was like, I'm only going to give it like four weeks. We'll see how it works. I'll probably only have like 22 followers. And then if it doesn't work, I'll just pull back from it. And within like four weeks, it just exploded. I put out one post that was about how fertility is not an industry and just explosion from patients and and followers and people wanting more information from me. And it really like shifted my the way I was thinking that, oh, this is just something that I might do to something that this is actually, I would say, 
I would say it's actually part of my job at this point. Like I post almost like it's part of my job. It is part of your job. I, I, I think that is a really great way of looking at it. it you recognize it as, as part of your job because of the level that you've gotten to. And what I see very often is just that most people that have their practices established already, it's they don't have that impetus to jump in with both feet and it's not part of their job. But I just see the relevance shifting away and not really even that slowly either. There are doctors that were not even certified REIs five years ago that are now among the most influential in our field. And I, I just, you know, I, I think right now it's still for a lot of folks, it's still like there's just still enough given the the caseloads and demand for treatment and services that and the supply of REIs and and practitioner advanced providers that provide fertility treatment is low enough but i am starting to see it more and more like when we when we're starting to talk to practices where they've got weak social media presence or just outdated marketing or outdated communications i'm i'm seeing like okay now it, it's it's starting to slow down have you seen it like is it affecting your your practice load would you say or did you still say it's, it's a work in progress oh no i definitely think that it has positively impacted the number of patients i see so i still see a fair number of referrals from OBGYNs, which are really great referrals but i see like I said, a fair number of people who just found me on their own. Patients see their, their OBGYN maybe once a year, maybe once a year. And if you're trying for a year and you see your OBGYN, you've only been trying for six months, and then you see your OBGYN and now it's 18 months, they very well could be doing all of their own education on fertility and infertility in that year break where they're not seeing an OBGYN. So a lot of these younger women are referring themselves. They're not being referred by their doctor. We've done a preliminary survey on this. I'm trying to get a few more partners involved so that we can just get a bigger data pool. And I'd like to work with a statistician, someone who's used to submitting abstracts at ASRM. But we started digging into patients, like exactly what referral even means. And the preliminary data that we have is that only 25% of patients are given a strong recommendation for one REI. Only 20, and then another, you know, I think maybe a third or so are, they're given a couple options and then another quarter aren't referred at all. And so, and then we look, we look even deeper and we have data on all of our clients. For all of our clients, 60% would be really, really low for looking at online reviews. Almost all of our clients are 70, 75% of the new patient. This isn't someone that's, this isn't Google Analytics data. This is the patient inside the office, an actual new patient, not just a lead. 70% greater looking at online reviews. In our survey, again, this is our sample size is still pretty small, that's 90%. Of people, it's even when they were referred, they're looking at online reviews and in social media. What it and, and this is one thing that I constantly have to correct clinics on when we first start working with them is that they are obsessed with single point attribution, and single point attribution is dead wrong. This is in 1996 where it's like here's here's the REI in town, go see them, and that's how the person came to you. 
we have an entire chart of all of the different points that someone that falls off the journey or makes a different decision. All of these are different decisions and they have different points of how they make those decisions. And the, 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 uh, the referring provider is a very strong one, but it's still only one. And so we're, we're obsessed with just diving deeper and deeper into this. But one thing that I try to correct people on is forget single source attribution. There's not one reason that somebody chooses your clinic. Some are stronger than others. But you want to identify all of the main reasons why somebody chose your clinic. And, and so we always ask in yes or no questions. We don't have one single field for patients to say, how, how did you hear about us? So that, that, that's the point of, of single point attribution. But I also wanted to make the point that you are probably, I would imagine, I that you're building relationships with OBGYNs in your area from social media. Very much so. Very much so. I mean, actually, like two days ago, one of the OBGYNs was like, hey, let's get happy hour. And I was like, I've never even met you. We should we should get happy hour. So yes, I am definitely building stronger relationships that way. When I when I market out in the field, when I go and see OBGYNs, the first thing I do is I tell them about my Instagram. I'm like, you should either follow me or if you're not following me, like you should be able to provide this information to your patients because they may not be ready right now to try, but they might secretly be wanting to read a little bit more about it. And and I think a lot of OBs give out that information. So it may not may not end up with a patient in that very minute, but I do see a lot of patients probably from that. And so th- that example of somebody reaching out to you for happy hour, you didn't send somebody to their office to give them bagels. You didn't send somebody with pamphlets. This was the relationship that you made on social that different people can make by using hashtags, by looking for the, the doctors in your you're following them on social media, commenting on what they're doing, at contributing to their conversation. Not, hey, do you want to send me patients? But just contributing and building the relationship. And then when you are seeing them in person, you're also giving them something to stay in touch with and stay top of mind with. And like giving them a reason to share your name with patients other than just this is someone that you can seek for treatment right now. But because that's a big decision. So they they can they can refer that and lead someone to that decision, but they can also say, hey, here's here's some more for you to check out. And then by the time it is time to to make that referral, you're already the natural choice, and or they've just made it earlier, and it's the social media that nurtures them the rest of the way by by the time that they actually make that decision. But there are all kinds of ways where we can do this, and one of the clients that we work with. They weren't going to hire a, a physician liaison and they had just kind of lost OBGYN referrals bit by bit over the years. Another group had come in and done a better job with that. And we don't really have any resources to send someone there to, to, to go do door knocking. So I said, let's just try a content program. Let's try a, a content program where we're uh, reaching out to other OBGYNs. It's still really early to tell. But those first three months of doing that, the OBGYN referrals were almost 40% higher than what they were prior. It's just like, it's just, it's the same thing as bagels and pamphlets, just a lot more meaningful. And you don't need to 
send someone to the office to do it. Exactly. I think I do think that there is value in sending somebody to sort of maintain relationships that I can't get to all the time. Like, sure, I have my great group of OBGYN friends, but I have a lot of colleagues out there that I just can't get to their office all the time. So there's definitely value to having somebody kind of checking in and making sure that nothing slips through the cracks. But the social media aspect is another way for people to sort of stay in touch and just a different version. And even that person, they've got access to the practices social. One thing we tell people all the time is like, we can't do your, all of your stuff. We can do the ads, we can create content, we can do video, we can like, we, we can do community management. There's a lot we can do, but we've got to the point where every single practice needs thumbs in the office is what I call it. And so if your clinic liaison has the thumbs, which they should, that should be part of their responsibilities, collecting content around the, the practice. They go do that drop off. They just take a, a, a picture and they could take a selfie with the team if they would let them. They could just take a picture out front. And say, hey, this is an OBGYN group that we have a relationship with. They're great. They're located over here. And then you can do that with every group. If somebody complains, hey, why why do you blow them up and not us? It's like, well, we got to right now. Oh, as opposed to, hey, you can do it for, there's, there's so many different ways to be able to augment the relationship from social media. And you know, I don't have a large following, but I it, I feel like I know almost everyone in the field. It's because I use it's because I use social media as more of a one on one and to to nurture those relationships in the ways that you're talking about. And also to your point, like one of the ways that our pod that I've noticed that our podcast has been growing in distribution is from reps, pharma reps that are bringing it to the doctors, and they're saying, "Hey, did you hear about this guy's podcast?" And it's content that allows one to do that. We'll probably talk about that a lot more, but you had mentioned something earlier in the show that I'd love to get your perspective on, which is, I just, I loved how proud you were of your practice group. Uh, saying like very respectfully, I think we're the best. And I think that, I think that there's so many doctors that would love to have a, a younger doc like you to be wrapping their practice like that and to, join and be part of the group and we should probably say that you're you're with the independent group right yes and that which i think is probably the the largest independent group in in your market now and i think we might be really besides academics like one of the only independent groups left yeah, in right. so it's it's really nice to be a bunch of doctors making decisions for our patients and and i wouldn't have I would not have changed my decision to join this group in the least. Never would I have changed my decision. Why is that important to you? Well, when I was looking for a practice, I really, I'm all about my patient care and I wanted to make decisions for my patients. I want my patients to know that I am their doctor from their first visit to their first IUI to their miscarriage to their IVF cycle, their embryo transfer, and that I am going to be the doctor for them, making decisions for them basically the whole time. And although there are five of us and we work really well as a team, we're sort of almost like individual practitioners for most of the time. So I sit down and I look at every ultrasound. I look at every lab test. I sit down with my nurse. My nurse calls 
and make sure that my patients understand what's going on. And that was really important to me. There wasn't like a group of doctors making a decision on my patient in the middle of the day. And a lot of big, big practices, that's how they work. And so when I sit down with a patient, if they have a cycle that did not go well, I can say, this is what we did to, to try and fix this, or this is what we did during the process to try and improve it. And I know that I did everything possible for that patient. So that was super important to me when I was looking for a practice to join. We talk a lot about on the show about recruiting younger doctors and PCRS this year, for example, every single doctor that I saw comes up to me and says, you know, do you know any of these fellows? Can you introduce us? Do you know anybody looking to see guys like, yeah, you and everybody else. And by the, by the time they're second year, they're already locked up. It's that, it's that competitive. And one of the trends that we're seeing is there are less going to independent groups. There are more going to, at least going to, to larger groups, most of which have equity partners. And so, do you still see the, you know, and, and so you are one of these exceptions that, that being independent is really important to you, that, that you're super proud to be a part of this practice. Is there still space for that for the fellow class that's in now, the folks that are come out the next three years and beyond? I think we are one of the... <laughs> smaller subsets nowadays. I think that obviously more big practices are being owned by private equity and by venture capitalists. That is something that was not overly attractive to me. I, like I said, I personally like the fact that I make a lot of decisions in my practice personally like that I was offered partnership in my practice. So all of those were really important to me. I do think that the way that some of the newer doctors think about medicine is a little bit different. I wanted a partnership. I wanted to be also learning the business side of things. I wanted that in I wanted that growth potential from when I finished. A lot of the younger doctors maybe don't feel that desire, that need. Most of the younger doctors are probably being offered more than I was offered when I started, but I also saw the potential in the practice that maybe isn't there if you're joining a practice that is backed by a venture capitalist group. So that's really where my, my brain was at. I wanted to learn the business side. I, I love medicine, but I also think that that's a really interesting part of, of medicine. And I think that it's constantly shifting. I think that right now we're going to be super hardcore venture capitalist directed, but in a couple of years, we may be like boutique medicine and venture capitalists, is, patients are going to push away from that. So you really don't know where medicine's going to be. And I wanted to kind of get my feet wet in every aspect of it. And to me, the finances were important, but we're all, we're all great. We're all doing well. No one is hurting in our field. And to me, having a lot more autonomy over my patients, over the practice, being able to sit down with my practice on a Thursday and say, hey, I want to add this protocol. And the next day being able to start doing it was all really important to me. I use the regional bank analogy a lot of where we're going in terms of boutique or owned by private equity, which is look at the, in just about any city, there's probably a small bank in the suburbs somewhere with maybe five locations. And then 
they merge up with one of the other banks in the in the suburb, maybe they're like the third biggest bank in the city. And after maybe one more of those, they become the biggest bank in the city. And then they merge with like the the bank from, you know, two cities or like the Dallas and the Houston one or the Buffalo and the Cleveland one do or any Orlando and Tampa do. And and then they become like a really big bank and then they get and then they get gobbled up by City and HSBC or, or whoever it may be. But then it starts all over again. And just just like craft breweries, right? There was Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, then SAB and, uh, bought Miller Coors, and then InBev bought Anheuser-Busch. And I think they're, they might even be trying to merge those now. But, but every city, even the smallest of cities, have over a dozen craft breweries now. And I see that happening in, in our field as well. But I wouldn't, but, I, but what about groups your side? This might be worth talking about. I, I don't know that that's not, it's not a single practitioner group. And that's probably, those are the folks that would describe themselves as boutique. But you're also, you don't have 20 docs in four labs in three different states. You're, are you all five doctors? There's five of us in in one city with with the, in the metro area. Yeah, we have five doctors, four locations. So we are located like I'm in the medical center. We have an office in Memorial City. Our main office is in Clear Lake, and then we have another office in Beaumont. So in the last five eight years, we've had some really healthy growth. I mean, we've had pretty significant growth from increasing our doctor number. I was the third or I was the fourth, but right before me, it was Dr. Crochet, who's the third. And right after me is Dr. Katharisen, who's the fifth. So we had some pretty healthy growth pretty quickly, as well as expansion of the clinic locations. So yeah, I would not consider us like boutique by any means. I think that was more like the future might be even more, more kind of boutique medicine. Um, But I do think we have more definitely more patient-centered care just because we're a smaller group and each of us kind of has a prime location. And so we sort of see the same staff all the time. We sort of see the same patients. So from that perspective, we're kind of a, a medium-sized group. And and I mean, people ask to, to come and purchase us all the time. And, you know, it's not, it's not something that we haven't heard about. It's just not where we are right now. You're a great size for their numbers, the market, the size of your practice that that that's what they're looking for, especially because in your market the rest of the options are off the table. Right, <laughs> makes us even so, makes us even better looking. <laughs> well, what do you think about the future for that size of practice? I definitely see that you know, I know one single doc practice. They they run that office with seven people. That's pretty darn impressive. That's that's a boutique. And then of course you know there we've had the the largest practice groups on this show, and I see how their economics work. What do you think about practices your size? What do they need to do to remain independent and remain successful? So I would say we are certainly much larger than seven people. And the bigger you get, you definitely have growing pains. So we're definitely experiencing the growing pains whenever we add a new location. But whenever we do add a new location, we basically, we, we're all in. So like patients aren't going to be only able to go there on a Tuesday. So, you know, we, we put the full on effort into any new location that we start. And I think that's important for patients is that we're not just like throwing ourselves all over the place. But I think that the positives of going to a practice with four or five doctors is that there's always somebody available. So the positive from my perspective is 
I can take a vacation and not be stressed out of my mind that no one's watching my patients because I trust my partners wholeheartedly that they can do that. And if something were to go wrong and I was in the operating room, one of my partners could check on that patient. I wouldn't be stressed while I'm in the operating room about something else going on. So there's definitely a benefit of having more than just one doctor. And I was not looking to start my own practice when I started. And I was not interested in joining a practice with just one other person because in addition to being a a fertility doctor, I'm also a mom and I have other parts of me. And so I really wanted to have a practice that I loved, but also let me be a mom and do things that are outside of just being a physician. So that's where I think it is a good middle ground for the physician. So the patients still get great quality of care with their one doctor. But if it doesn't work, we can always, you know, mix it up or say somebody doesn't like me because sometimes people, patients don't click with me. There's, you know, there's some patients don't click with certain doctors. They can easily transfer to another doctor in my group as well, which is nice. Candace, we've talked a lot about how relatively newer doctors can build their practice, how they choose practices, what the future for them and different practice types is, and how they use digital media and new forms of communication to do that. How would you want to conclude with our audience? I would say that if you are finishing fellowship or getting ready to finish fellowship, or you are even well-established, that if you have the opportunity to put yourself out there, take it. Find what makes you unique and happy in that space, and then work on the other parts that make you a little bit like more concerned, and you will thrive. I really truthfully believe that you will thrive. But you have to go in, both feet, jump in, take a dive, and it takes time. Like I'm a year and a half in, and I just hit 10K, just hit 10,000 followers. So, I mean, it takes time to really build that relationship with other physicians and other followers and get that patient base to come in to see you. But it happens. You just have to, to foster it. And you should follow Dr. Perfetto on Instagram. We will link up to that in the show notes. Dr. Candace O'Hearn Perfetto, Houston, Texas. Thank you very much for coming on Inside Thank Reproductive you. Health. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.